pronunciation that I, I, I was beginning to sound like an American. And um, I wasn't sure whether that was a compliment or an insult. I didn't quite know how to, how to take it. So I was quite pleased with it, whatever way it was, that I was starting to sound like an American. Um, and uh, I want you to know that we love Rob and Aaron and their children, and we love Mac and Karen. And it brings me great joy to be here this morning and to uh, bring the word of God. It's a real delight to, uh, to see them so happily settled among you. And thank you also for your warm welcome here this morning. We pray the Lord will be good and gracious to us as we hear his word. I'm going to read from um, the book of Revelation. It's printed for you in your bulletin. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 20, verses uh, 11 to 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Be gracious to us, our God and Father. Enable us to know and hear what God the Lord does say, in order that we might not simply hear the word of the Lord, but that we might be doers of the word, that we might be transformed by it, that we might take that which you have spoken to us, and that you might be pleased to do us good, showing us the great and glorious things of Christ, because we pray these things in his glorious name. Amen. This passage of God's word teaches us that one day... There will be a final judgment. It sets it before us very briefly, but it sets it before us very powerfully and directly. And I can hear in your mind some of you are already saying to yourselves something like, Oh no, a sermon on the day of judgment. Great. I was so looking forward to church this morning. On the other hand, I can hear some of you saying in your head, Great. A sermon on the day of judgment. There are so many people I know need to hear this sermon. (laughs) Because many of us have developed that habit of listening on behalf of someone else. Especially when it comes to the day of judgment, we're thinking to ourselves, Oh yes, at last they're going to get what they deserve. Well, that's good. That's good, I suppose. Some of us come to this text of God's word and uh, sense of the day of judgment. Some of us come to it a little annoyed. Because we're well aware of the fact that God already knows all things. And so why does there have to be this formal day of judgment? 
we come to it a little bit annoyed because we think to ourselves, well, we know that on the day that we die, that's it. Our eternal destiny is fixed. There's no change after that point of death. We're either going to be going to heaven and enjoying the joy of God or we'll be going to hell and enjoying torment here He speaks of being thrown into the lake of fire. And so I think sometimes we're a little annoyed with ourselves. Why does God have to raise us all up from the dead and have us all stand there? And then all these things that come out of the book, you know, that we're going to hear and be judged according to what we've done. Why why does he have to be so formal about it? Because after all, you know, he's judging us anyway. And when we die, it's all over anyway. So why does God go through this formality of... A day of judgment. So some of us come to hear a sermon on the day of judgment with real sense of, oh no, this is the last thing I wanted to hear. Although I encourage you to listen to the end. Some of us come to a a sermon on the day of judgment thinking to ourselves, yes, because we're aware of other people. And some of us think, I don't like this about God. I don't like the way that God does this thing that he's going to raise us all from the dead and judge us. But the simple fact is that uh, on the day of judgment... God will be seen to be God. God himself is the center of this whole activity in terms of the vindication of his justice and the magnificent vindication of his grace, which will be made clear to all and everyone on that last day. It starts out here with these wonderful words, I saw a great white throne and... Him who was seated on it. In other words, the day of judgment is this fact that you, that I, that we will come face to face at last with the living God Himself. I saw the great white throne and Him who was seated on it. That judgment day brings us face to face with God. And the first thing that I want you to grasp from this text is this. That God alone is king over all things. When you first uh, step into the book of, of Revelation, one of the interesting things is that you are immediately introduced to the throne of God. Um, Revelation uh, chapter 1 and verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So the book of Revelation begins with this first vision of God as being upon a throne. And it continues in that theme. When after you've heard the letters to the seven churches, then you come back in chapter 4 and verse 2. And uh, at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. Only in chapter 4 he goes on to begin to describe the one who is seated on the throne. Here is this magnificent description of the glory of God. He says, uh, he sat there and had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peelings of thunder before the throne. Hans Zimmer was wishing he could do the background music for that particular scene because it would be intense. You'd have those rumblings that would be making the movie theater shake. 
And uh, you'd feel it. You'd, your bones, your skin would be tingling because there is God upon the throne. What a sight there is of God himself. But when we get to the end of the book and we begin this particular section, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, no further description is given of God himself. Simply this fact that God is still on his throne. After all that's happened in the book of Revelation, the appearance of Satan, war that went on, the horrible things that were set clear in that particular book, you reach the end, there's still a throne, and one is still seated on it, and you get this particular sense that nothing has really happened in any way to impact upon the glory and majesty of God. I was struck when I was reading through the book of Revelation. Well, I was struck when I was reflecting on these particular words when he says, I saw a great white throne. Because the, you're understanding the word great. All right. I, if I was speaking in my normal, I would put lots more syllables into it. I would say great. Because uh, it's a guttural word, of course, and has all kinds of great kind of sense. You say it when, you're, when you score a try in rugby. Oh, that was a great try. You say it when you're eating uh, your Ulster fry. Oh, that was a great fry we had for breakfast this morning. You said it yesterday when the elders had cooked seven million eggs that Rob brought to the retreat. And it seemed to me they cooked them all and ate most of them. And it was great. See, I was struck by the use of the word great. That it occurs over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's such a small, tiny word that you rush by it. I saw a great white throne. But here's an interesting fact. At the start of chapter 20, I saw an angel um, coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and uh, not just a chain, a chain, but a great chain with which he binds Satan and throws him into the abyss. Um, chapter 11, uh, verse 11, we have this great white throne. Chapter 21 and verse 3, I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Or chapter 21, further down in verse 10, He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Or if you go, uh, if you go further back in um, Revelation, this word great keeps occurring. 18, chapter 18 and verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. Chapter 19, 1, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Chapter 19 and verse 6, uh, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters singing, Hallelujah. Chapter 19, verse 1, the great multitude and so on. I was struck by the fact that the word great is used to describe almost everything in the book of Revelation. When you reach the end of all things, there's still something great. When you reach the end of all things, God's throne is still great. The worship in heaven is great. The casting down of Satan is great. The worship of God is great and majestic. The casting down of Satan is great and mighty. The rule and reign of God is great and it is beyond all comparison. That's why I think in the book of Revelation, in this apocalyptic vision of the end times, John keeps using the word great in order to say there's nothing comparable. You have never seen anything like this. 
Your eyes have never witnessed anything that you could even begin to imagine that will be like what happens on this last day when we see the great God in his great glory and the great praises are heard of the great crowd of people gathered into heaven because God himself is king. It is a great white throne, glistening purity, dazzling holiness, profound righteousness and justice. God alone is king over all of heaven and nothing that Satan has done impacts the greatness of God's throne. Isn't that majestic? Because we sometimes think to ourselves that Satan in all his might and all his power, in all his foul fiendishness has wrecked everything. And nothing Nothing at all has had any impact on the sovereignty of God and the majesty of the one who sits upon the throne. So as you consider that final judgment, remember first of all that God himself is king. Which leads us then to a second point that I think this text makes clear to us. That God is king and one day there will be an end to the world as we know it. Now I'm waiting for some of you to say it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. Uh, My boys used to play that in the background until iPods were invented. Which for a parent was a majestic majestic moment of the invention of the iPod. and All music could just be in there. Instead of me having to listen to it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. You may feel fine when it reaches the end of the world as we know it. And you may not feel fine. It depends, doesn't it? And I'll I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But there are two statements here that I think in this section that indicate for us the end of the world as we know it. The first one is found in um, verse uh, 11 where he says, I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it. And then we're told this, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So he's saying that earth and sky and the, the creation as we know it comes to an end. It doesn't go on forever and ever, but it itself on that last day comes to an end. Now, we know that that's true because there are other scriptures that indicate that to us. It's not just a revelation thing. Um, So, for example, in Psalm 102, uh, listen to these verses from verse 25 to the end of the Psalm. 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 100. See how American I sound? That's why I was so complimented, I think. Psalm Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Isn't that wonderful? And he's telling us that that even the psalmist knew that one day there would be an end of the created world as we know it. But he balances that scary truth with this other truth that you will remain and our children will be secure 
That's covenant theology just kind of throbbing there in terms of God's glorious eternal presence and that this has an impact on our children in terms of the gospel. I like that. Or here is another Old Testament reference, Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51 and verse 6. Isaiah, Isaiah. Okay. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But he doesn't leave it there. So he tells us it's the end of the world as you know it, the creation as we understand it will all come to an end. Then he adds this, but my salvation will be forever. So in Psalm 102, he said it's going to be the end of the world as we know it, but God himself will never end. So here in Isaiah 51, he's saying there'll be an end of the world, created world as we know it, but God's salvation will never end, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. See, it tells you the end of the world, but he adds this theological truth. God himself won't end, salvation won't end. Or here's another example. Um, Matthew chapter uh, 24 and verse 35. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will not pass away. You see, I, I was struck by the, the way the Bible seems to always do that. It tells you this small fact the world will end. <laughs> small fact. <laughs> But then it tells you this eternal fact. But don't fret. Because God won't end. Salvation won't end. God's word won't end. There, there's a salvation for our children. That is a majestic truth. There will be an end of the world as we know it. But there's a deeper theology that runs underneath it. Reminding that God himself will never end. God is on his throne. He rules. He's sovereign. He's majestic. The world as we know it will end. But there's another strand in which this passage of God's word is telling us that the world as we know it will end. Because he goes on to tell us uh, in verse, um, small print, in verse 13, the sea will give up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What's that mean? Why? What is this? Because this is not just an end of the world in it. It's reached its point. It's over. It's an act of judgment. So you don't hear that there's an act of judgment on the created world, but you do hear that there's an act of judgment on death and Hades. Hades is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Sheol. And in that, in that mindset, in that world of understanding, Hades was meant, what Hades meant was the place where the dead are. The place where the souls are. Now we know in our Presbyterian shorter catechism world that when, uh, when a believer dies, their body, being still united to Christ, is laid in the ground, in the earth, to wait for the resurrection. But their souls go immediately into the presence of God and are per made perfectly holy and happy. The souls of unbelievers don't go into 
their immediate presence of God, but I think already begin something of their torment. But that's not all that heaven will be, nor is that all that hell will be. In this time in which we live, there is, we call it, the intermediate state, that, that the souls of believers are with God, but their bodies have not yet been resurrected. This is not yet all that God has prepared in terms of heavenly bliss, in the same way that this is not all that hell will be while we're waiting for the return of Christ. But the moment that Christ returns, that point of existence will cease to be. Because there'll be a reunion of soul and body and glorified bodies living in the presence of God forever. As there will also be a reunion of body and soul in torment forever. And I think that this passage is telling us that it's the end of the world as we know it. Not simply in terms of the created world that we know and live in and walk upon. But also the end of the world as we know it in terms of the sorrow that we have lived under because of Adam's sin. So they'll reach a point where there'll be no more death and dying. That's it. That was a result of the fall and the sin. That was one of the effects of the curse that fell upon us. But that'll come to an end one day at the final judgment. There will be no more dying. Glorious thought in a heavenly sense. Horrible thought in a hellish sense. There'll be an end to that whole world of death and an end to that whole world of Hades, that waiting for the end time to come. It will all be brought to an end. It's the end of death. We sang it. There's a majestic hymn that we sang in Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, which has those words in it, death of death. Oh, what a day. What a glorious day when we'll stop dying. Because we're all dying. Some at a faster rate than others. But also, what a glorious thought that the eternal state will begin. Because death and Hades are judged by God. Cast away into the lake of fire which is the eternal death. Eternity is an eternal state. That's what will have begun. That's why it's the end of the world as we know it. You see those two strands? Creation and the spiritual effects of the fall. Done. I know that it's almost cliched to say it. It might even sound like, oh yeah, the pastor's an old-fashioned fire and brimstone kind of guy. But it must be said, I think, since such a day is coming... Are you ready? Are you ready? In the history of uh, Presbyterianism in man, that is the state where I live, the state of man, there were two there were two Presbyterian ministers by the name of John Murray in the 1780s, both of whom were planting Presbyterian churches. And the emphasis of their preaching was such that they were both given nicknames. I don't know if if churches give nicknames to preachers anymore. But both these preachers had these nicknames because they both had the same name, John Murray, John Murray. One was called Salvation Murray. And the other one was called Damnation Murray. Now, one of the Murrays 
congregation was unable to keep up with his pay. And in those days, since it was an established church system in 1780, the town had to pay the... the and so he took the, he took the church to court. Must have been a happy relationship <laughs> between the pastor and the church. He took them to court in order that they should pay his salary. And the judge is looking at the piece of paper, and he sees that the Reverend John Murray is in court suing for his pay. And he looks over his glasses and he asks, Is it Salvation Murray or Damnation Murray? I was thinking to myself... I don't want to have the title damnation attached to me. That's not the best of nicknames. But I do have to ask you the question, is your soul prepared to stand before the great white throne at the end of all things? For there's a third thing that you need to understand. This text teaches us That on that day, at the end of all things, as we stand before the great white throne, the books will be opened and we will be judged. This passage of scripture is is teaching us that everyone will be there. The dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. We'll all be there. I'll be there. You'll be there. Your great-grandparents will be there. All the dead will be raised, those who have been dead and buried and scattered upon the earth and gone through that system of, you know, my wife talks to me about the life cycle and she talks to me about the worms and what this means and so on. And I tell her, it's fine, just don't tell me. And uh, all, the, all the dead will be raised, those whose ashes are scattered on the earth. And even those who have fallen in the sea, the sea will give up its dead. It doesn't matter where the dead are. It doesn't matter where the dust particles have reached in the circle of life kind of thing. That's what my wife tells me and I don't like to know. Like, is it in my milk? Because the cows have eat the grass and I don't want to know. doesn't matter where, you, where the molecules of you are. All will be raised and all will stand. Great, small, Christian, unbeliever, I'll be there. You will be there. And the Bible says, the books are opened. I think those are, those are chilling words. I'll be standing there and God will open the book. Oh no, don't do it. Don't open it. Because all the things that ever you did are known. And all the things that ever you thought are known. And all the things that ever you said are known. Everything everything, we will be utterly naked in all of our being when the books are opened. Now, we know that Jesus knows all things. We know that. We, we know that because remember the woman at the well who ran off back into the town and she invited the townspeople to come see a man who told me all things ever I did. Remember she said that? 
I keep thinking to myself, if I was one of the people living in that town and the lady came and said, come see this guy who told me everything ever I did. I'm not going to see him. I don't, I don't want him to tell me all things ever I did. I, I, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm doing the dishes for my wife. I'm busy right now. It's, it's a frightening thing. But yet, it filled her with joy. Even though it was sinful things that he knew of her. Or how many times we're told in the word of God with regards to the Lord Jesus. How many times this little phrase occurs in the gospel. Knowing their thoughts. He and then whatever. He said such and such or he did such and such. Knowing their thoughts. Frightening, isn't it? Even in our, in our social media age, where we put our thoughts instantly onto some web page somewhere, because we think that's what we're supposed to do, that can be, it can be troubling because you, want, you try to bring them back when you realize, oh, shouldn't have said that. Everything that ever I said, everything that ever I thought, everything that ever I have done will be known. Or I, I think it's chilling. Remember, um, Jesus is sitting around the table and Judas is there. And, and that chilling statement that uh, Jesus, knowing that Satan had put it into Judas' heart to betray him, said to him, what did he say? Something like, go quickly to do what you to do. What you do. Um, we know this truth. But yet this same truth now is being placed in a, in a wholly different category, I think, when we're told books were opened and judgment falls upon each one according to what they had done. They were judged, each one of them. That's so individual, one by one kind of statement according to what they had done. Now think about that and reflect on it a moment. I know that there are times in your life when you've done something stupid I do it most often uh, times I stand up to speak and I think, oh, why did I say that? You, you do something stupid or you say something stupid and then, and then you think to yourself, what have I done? But now think very carefully, are there times when you've actually not just done something stupid, but something wrong? And as soon as you've done it, you say, oh, what have I done? Is that ever? No? Never happens to you? No. <laughs> so, it's one thing. It's one thing for us today to do something stupid or to, to do something wrong and say, what have I done? But it, it'll be another thing when we're standing at the end of all things before the great white throne and we'll be judged because the books are opened and we'll be judged according to what we have done. It'll be another thing that day to say, what have I done? Because it's too late. It's too late. Which is why it's very important that you know that God is king. It's very important that you know that in the, on this great white throne We've reached the end of all things and there's no turning back and there's no opportunity to change. And it's very important that you know the books will be opened and all things ever you did are known. That's why you need to hear 
in the fourth and final place, that thank God there is another book opened that day. I'm sure you heard it whenever we were reading through it. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And clearly, if your name is written in the book of life, you shall not be thrown into the lake of fire. Now we know that this book, which is here called the book of life, is in other parts of the book of Revelation called the Lamb's book of life. That is the best title for a book that has ever been published in the whole history of the universe. The Lamb's book of life, because it belongs to Jesus. And it is the book that contains the names of all those that God has chosen in his sovereign electing love to love. And to send his son to die on the cross in place of that sinner bearing the burden of his sin. It is the book that contains the names of all those who come to believe in Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to you in the gospel. The Lamb's book of life is the book of life and it is the best book in the whole history of the universe. Here is what will happen that day. This is my understanding of how the book of Revelation is teaching us this truth and teaching us it in conjunction with other scriptures. The books will be opened and everyone will be judged according to all that they have done. Now you know some of the things that you have done that are sinful. So you know some of the things that you're expecting to hear being read out. And you also know that you don't know all of the things that you have done. All of the sins that you have committed. Because there are many sins that you've committed that are just, you're oblivious to. And you are thinking, oh, I'm going to hear those sins read out as well. That's what you're expecting. You're expecting the list to begin when you were one year old. You remember that? <laughs> when you... And off it will go, and it will get longer and longer the older you get. The book will be opened, you'll be judged according, and you're, you're expecting to hear about that time that you, you were coveting the car or the job. And you're expecting to hear about that time that you lied, or that you bore false witness. Or you're expecting to hear that, that time in which you stole something on your tax return. No, no. You're expecting to hear that time that you were guilty of lust. It was burning in your brain and your mind and your heart. You're expecting to hear about that adultery that was committed all those years ago. You're expecting to hear uh, a list of the times that your seething anger just was ripping into you, but you didn't say anything to anyone. You just kept smiling. You're expecting to hear about the times your seething anger ripped out and tore into people. You're expecting to hear about murder. You're expecting to hear about those times that you dishonored your parents. You're expecting to hear about those times that you couldn't care less about the Lord's Day or hallowing it or keeping it holy. You're expecting to hear a list of all the times that you took the name of the Lord in vain. You're expecting to hear a detailed list of your idolatries because your idolatries are quite detailed and intense. You're expecting to hear a list of the times that you had another God apart from the living God, right? I just reversed the order and worked backwards from 10 to, down to 1. 
And you can, you can populate it with the sins that you know you've committed. And then there are all the ones that you don't know that you have committed. And here, I think, is what is going to happen in that last judgment. Every sin, every single sin, both known and unknown to you, when you expect it to be read out, it won't be read out. Because as God looks at that, because your name is in the Lamb's book of life, when he opens up this other book that has all the sins written in it, he'll find that sin and it will say, uh, covered. Or he'll move down the, and you'll, you'll think, oh well, uh, that one's covered, but he'll move further down the list and there's that other sin and there's a mark over it and the mark says, pardoned. Or he'll move further down the list and it will say something like, paid in full. Or it might say something like, no condemnation. Or it might say something like, Christ has justified. The whole list, every single sin you've committed, every single sin you know you committed, every single sin you don't even know you committed, forgiven, pardoned, covered. It's not in the book anymore. It's been cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he separated our sins. It will never come against you because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what we need to do? We need to let that truth, covered, atoned for, pardoned, paid in full, forgiven, no condemnation, justified in Christ... You know what we need to do? We need to, let that, we need to let that sweep over our souls. We need to sometimes just simply stand and be drenched in the truth of being pardoned. We need to simply stand and weep in the joy of being forgiveness. Of being forgiven. Because forgiveness has been granted to you fully and freely. In all that Christ Jesus did on the cross. We need to. We don't really fully understand. Do we? Because if we fully understood. What it meant to be forgiven. We would be of all people. Not most miserable but of all people most joyful. For we would know and understand a little bit of what the Apostle is reflecting on when he talks about there being no condemnation. For what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. For your sake we're killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not 
even the day of judgment shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know what you should do? You should dance all the way home. You should be skipping. I'm not going to try it, but you should do it. There should be in us this joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because Christ has died and risen again from the dead and has pardoned us of all our sins. So today, come to Jesus if you have not come to him. Today, acknowledge your sin and ask for his pardon. Today, take the pardon that is freely offered to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, be merciful to us as we have heard the word of God, the glorious word of the pardon of all our sins. And help us that we might be found trusting in Jesus because we pray in him. Amen.